Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. March Madness may be over, but we still have college sports on the brain this week. We're going to be joined later in the show by senior sports reporter Zach Zagger to fill us in on how the NCAA is headed to trial over whether student-athletes should be paid. And later on, we'll end the show talking about a First Amendment lawsuit that really stinks. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. What's going on today? Well, I have a... Before we get to the news, I mean, I have an extremely important office update. Okay. uh, Specifically specifically an office snack update. Uh Oh, those are very important. Teddy Grahams. What? They're back. I mean, no. I'm not even like a huge uh, Teddy Grahams guy. You see our producers' faces in this room right now, guys. I'm not even a huge Teddy Grahams guy. I just didn't know that they were still around. That was that. That or was that my news. they existed news. in our office. I don't know. We've had many shows since Pop Chips and Veggie Straws became became options, and I think those were much more notable. I can't ever find these them. are. I mean, you're you're welcome to talk about them, and you are. Well, uh, but the, I can never even find the Veggie Straws. They go. You got to so raid quickly. You got to raid office. the closet. There, uh, there's a secondary market. It's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Bill chatted me one time. And he was like, bro, these straws, they rock. <laughs> I mean, they do. Very, they do. They're very good. He was very excited. We all are in a lot of ways. I'm very candid when I'm talking about snacks. <laughs> so we'll be back in a couple weeks with another snack update. But Welcome from ne- back to Law 360's snack update. But for now, uh, William, it looks like the uh, Supreme Court has been hard at work. Yeah, kind of a uh, kind of a uh, sort of a, a weird ruling. It, it, it you know, the, so the Supreme Court issued a ruling on Monday that federal overtime rules uh, don't apply to employees at car dealerships who advise customers about repair work. So, I mean, we've, I mean, we've all been there. It, th- those facts are pretty narrow. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, so it sounds super boring and super narrow, but it's actually a really big ruling about labor law, and and to the point where it had Justice Ginsburg writing this sort of impassioned dissent. Uh, sort of sounding the alarm on, on mm-hmm. this. So. Okay, well, I actually like talking about overtime, so I'm going to be an easy sell on talking about this on the podcast. <laughs> so we, we, but... we, we got a little sports, a little labor a law. Bore, a boring labor law <laughs> opinion. Never heard of one. Guys. Spraying all fields here. First of all, I think all employment opinions are very interesting, yeah. and this will get me through our sports section right. later. So, okay. Bill, break it down for us. Tell us exactly what happened. Yeah, so I mentioned those service advisors. So it was a group of these service advisors at Encino Motor Cars, which is a... Uh, a Mercedes dealership in the San Fernando Valley outside LA. Um, they sued their employer for not paying them overtime, claiming that the that Encino had violated the Fair Labor Standards Act, which yeah. is the federal law that that dictates that people have to pay overtime. So the dealership claimed that the advisors fell under one of the FLSAs, that's the Fair Labor Standards yeah. Act, mm-hmm. um, under one of its exemptions. They're these carve-outs uh, for people who don't have to be paid overtime. Mm-hmm. So specifically, they said that um, these type of employees fell under this exemption that's for, quote, salesmen primarily engaged in servicing automobiles. Okay. So it's this very narrow thing. There's a bunch of these under the FLSA that you don't have to pay overtime to. So the case went up and down for years, and it went to the Supreme Court before where they issued sort of this narrow ruling that didn't get to the, the, the meat of the case. But it finally got back up this term on the the central deciding question. Now, I know at some point we're going to get to some sort of things with wider implications. But what squarely did they decide now in this in this case? Right. So in a 5-4 ruling that sort of split along the classic lines, we sometimes talk about cases that don't. This is the this is one of the ones that really does. It was 5-4. Kennedy went with the conservatives. The conservative wing agreed with the dealership and ruled that the service advisors were fit under this exemption, that yeah. they were exempt from overtime, so the, the dealership didn't have to pay them that. Um, the ruling is 
like in narrow terms, is obviously a win for this particular dealership. Yeah. Um, there's also more than 18,000 other dealerships around the country. They all have people like this. So in those terms, it's it's a big deal for them. Um, and obviously it sucks for the, the people who filed the case. Well, I know a few things about employment law. I've uh, covered it for a long time. So anytime you start talking about FLSA, which is a huge law, right. and these exemptions in particular, I know that this could be broader than just those people, right? And so- it was. So it, as our employment law guru here at Law360, Vin Guerreri, wrote yeah. a really good story about the ruling. Um, it got rid of this sort of half century of precedent that said when you're looking at these exemptions under the FLSA – you um you like how you weigh them um and so it it sort of turned this really obscure ruling into a pretty pretty important one that'll come up a lot yeah okay so if they're changing how we we read these exemptions and how courts weigh them out right what exactly did they say so there's a lot of these exemptions there's more than 20 in under the flsa um and for decades when courts weighed it comes up a lot in litigation because there's a lot of gray areas on on any end of the exemption um, when courts weighed whether a particular employee or a particular class of employees fit under this exemption, meaning you don't have to pay them overtime, uh, they they applied this like super picky and narrow approach to it. They okay. said, unless you fit exactly under the rule that that Congress wrote the exemption, mm-hmm. you don't get this exemption. That, yeah. that that the the employee gets overtime and and um, essentially it's like in baseball, tie goes to the runner, tie goes to the employee when okay. it comes to this stuff. That was the old standard. On Monday, without really much explanation other than the fact that the court said it it wasn't in the text, the yeah. court said no, that presumption is gone. That standard is gone. Yeah. So they're gonna get. So the old the old rule was that if it it had to be plainly and unmistakably within the terms and spirit of the exemption. The new rule, as uh, explained by Justice Thomas in the majority opinion, said that simply courts should give the exemption a fair reading. So it's this much broader and squishier idea of who fits under these exemptions. I mean, not to project onto uh, Vin, who's going to probably write a lot of stories about the fallout from this, but a fair reading seems like the kind of thing that now lower courts are going to have to interpret what that means. Oh, completely. And it, and, it, and and for decades, they, they had this sort of set way that they did yeah. this, and now this is this much different way to do it. So it's going to come up a ton in mm-hmm. cases, um, and it likely means that way more people are going to fall under these exemptions for overtime. So you follow through, fewer people are going to get paid overtime. And anytime there's a 5-4 uh, decision along party lines, we usually get a pretty good dissent. You mentioned uh, Justice Ginsburg up top. What did she have to say about this? Yeah, RBG weighed in with a long and uh, pretty impassioned dissenting opinion. She um, she criticized the majority for, quote, stretching uh, the exemption to, quote, strip away protection for the most vulnerable workers in this occupation. Okay. So that was on the particular facts of this case. Yeah. Um, and then she included this footnote that I thought was really interesting, and it got to the novel nature of the ruling. And she said um, that the court issued this sort of rejected the standard, um, quote, without even acknowledging that it unsettles more than half a century of our precedent. So yeah, that, well, that's it. When when you were talking about what Thomas was saying, it is just kind of funny how this this thing is conventional wisdom and convention in law until it's not until you know, and it's you know it was subject to a new reading from Thomas. Right. But, yeah. So the power quote from her opinion though was um, this court once recognized that the particularity of FLSA exemptions precludes their enlargement by implication. 
Uh, the court today, yeah. in adding an exemption of its own creation, veers away from that comprehension of the FLSA's mission. I would resist, as the Ninth Circuit did, diminishment of the act's uh, overtime strictures. So it, it, it's, you know, as I said at the outset, when you're talking about just service advisors at Mercedes dealerships, it's pretty narrow. But it, it, it is this big sort of um, big ruling when it comes to the way overtime works in the U.S. Well, you mentioned, Bill, there's going to be a lot of litigation and uh, you know follow-up court proceedings that are going to come off of that overtime thing. And more litigation means more court filings. And where will we read those court filings? We're, of course, going to read them on Pacer. Wait, do, do you mean the Indiana Pacers? No. We're going to read them on their website? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't purport to know the litigation history of the Indianapolis uh, basketball team. But no, we're, of course, going to read them on Pacer. Uh, the federal court's uh, docket uh, web portal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all done it. We all open up Pacer and, you know, you you see the charges racking up. Of course, the company is kind enough to pay that for us. But I've always found myself wondering, you know, where does that money go? And it turns out I am not the only one who wonders where that money goes because last week uh, a D.C. federal judge ruled that, in fact, the federal judiciary has misused about $200 million worth of Pacer fees. Guys, I sort of love this as a story we're talking about on the podcast because it's like a nesting doll it's like a lawsuit about where the documents are for yeah. lawsuits yes exactly and i mean just a quick primer anyone who's listening who's even tangentially related to the legal profession knows about pacer but for people who don't uh it stands for public access to court electronic records and it is basically just an enormous web portal where every single document ever filed in a federal lawsuit resides it's very antiquated but it works pretty well it does yeah. yes and attorneys use it uh Reporters use it, uh, and and there's an issue that's cropped up in litigation. Uh, basically, two years ago, uh, a group of legal aid nonprofits uh, filed a class action against the government, and they basically said that PACER fees were too high. Um, they basically said the courts should only be using the money uh, from PACER, like, cover the bare minimum costs to actually run the website. And what are they charging now? I think it's 10 cents a page, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you think about how long some of these court documents get and how many a person might access in a day, it of course adds up. So the government's making quite a bit of money here. And these these nonprofits, uh, you know, some who, who some of them help, you know, veterans who are trying to bring legal claims mm -hmm. and people who are, you know, don't have as much access to the justice system. Um, basically said that the government's taken everybody for a ride. And, so when yeah. we talk about it adding up, do we have any figures here from this um, case? Like, yeah, I think how, that's, how high is it? It's important to note throughout this case, um, you know, 10 cents a page, like I said, uh, the class action uh, here was focused on a six-year period between 2010 and 2016, and the federal judiciary racked up $920 million in PACER oh, wow. fees. Well, I mean, I always guessed it would be high, but that's higher than I would have imagined. We are owed a refund if we—I mean, we, we probably are a big chunk of that. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I, that we, <laughs> we, are, we are no small, small portion of that. And so basically, like I say, it came down to these two arguments. You know, this group of plaintiffs said, you're charging us too much. Uh, and on the other side, the government was basically saying, we have latitude to use this money, not just to maintain this somewhat rudimentary looking web portal, but for anything that helps improve public access to the le to legal proceedings here. So that's where the two sides were in the case. And so where did the judge come down between those two arguments? It was very much a split the baby type of situation. Um, for, as, for something as nerdy as like court filings and what this is on, it got pretty heated here um, because there's sort of bigger picture stuff that we'll talk about later. But the judge basically said, dispensed with the with the plaintiff's claim, saying they're definitely allowed to do more than just maintain the website. But they also said, you, the government, 
you spent this money on stuff that is like only kind of tangentially related to like transparency in the legal process. Right. And I'm going to rein you in a little bit here. And like I said, it added up to about $200 million worth of uh, misallocated wow. funds. And her examples for that were like, for example, the courts used about $200 million to like upgrade like audiovisual technology in the courtroom, which is meant to sort of facilitate proceedings within the courtroom right so it's help. like having a, a video deposition being played yeah or something help, like that. help attorneys present cases on like you know flat screen tvs and help the jury understand different sort of cases and evidence being presented to them and while that's certainly important the issue here was like that's not what the pacer funds are used for that is for people who are not involved in litigation or are or, or not you know in the courtroom to figure out what happened in the courtroom that's the entire point so uh, she handed down a summary judgment to the plaintiffs and said, uh, you know, $200 million has been misallocated. So looking forward from that ruling, what happens next? What can we expect down the road? Yeah. So like I said, it was a class action. And the class that the judge certified here was any person who accessed PACER between 2010 and 2016. And like you said, I mean, you made a joke about Law 360 using it a lot. But, I mean, that's potential. I mean, I, I wouldn't even venture I mean, a guess. I mean, and it's, it's, it's also thousands probably, of people, like, it, perhaps mean, hundreds of thousands. It's got to be almost everyone listening to this podcast. Without a doubt. And, I mean, that's that's that number is growing <laughs> leaps and bounds every single week. So that's good. Um, but uh, on a more sort of systemic level, I mean, you can see a situation where the government could perhaps appeal. They've, After all, the court has told them you've misused $200 million. They yeah. may not take that lying down. But even these nonprofits who won in this case um, gave sort of measured reactions to their victory because some of the people on this side of it are very passionate. I mean, they think PACER should be free or basically well, it, free. Because it raises big questions, right? I mean, you're charging for access to a thing that is your right to use. The, your, you have a right to use the court system. And, and of course, we, there's court fees and everything you do with the legal system. But you get into tricky questions when you start charging people a lot of money to use the court system. Yeah, and it drew interest from a lot of, a lot of different people filed amicus briefs, from the lawmakers who passed the passed the statute that controls PACER to uh, journalist organizations. Um, and really, it gets to this point that the what, what, what the plaintiffs are trying to say is that, you know, access to a transparent judiciary is a bedrock of our democratic function. And that's what this case is really about. So it's uh, we're still in the early going here and we'll sort of see how uh, how the appeals shake out. Tales of the Billion Dollar March Madness Tournament, we're asking this week, should college athletes be paid? For decades, they've only been compensated with scholarships, but last week a case got the green light to go to trial that could lead to major changes in the economics of college sports. Here to unpack all the action is senior sports reporter Zach Zagger. Welcome, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me. Zach, there welcome back. Look at this guy. Well, before we get into this, Amber, I just would like to break a little news this afternoon. Uh, earlier today, um, I faced off against your venerable co-host, Alex Lawson, in our office ping pong tournament. And I'm proud to say that uh, I defeated him and moved on to the round of eight. Ooh. I mean, I thought I thought I got jobbed by the seating committee, to be honest. I mean, this is a Sweet 16 matchup, and we're like two yeah. of the, I don't know, like five or six best uh that's the excuse uh, there that you just uh, editorial really wow. players, right? Further. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the, the 
the, the cards fall where, where they do, and then you got to go. I mean, well, it's it was a that, tough bracket. It's good that he brought this up because while you're both professional reporters, you are amateur athletes when it comes to the ping pong table. It's true. I've not been compensated for my ping ponging. Have you? Uh, no, no, not at all. Okay. Okay, guys. So as everyone knows that listens to this podcast, I'm not a big sports person. But you're a good sounding board for this, though. Well, and I just want you guys to basically explain <laughs> it all to me. Um, I do know that college athletes don't get paid. So can you just tell us a little bit about that, Zach? It seems weird to an outsider like me that doesn't really follow you see the sports. amount of sponsorship that yeah. goes into it and everything else, right? Well, you know, I'm sure you watched uh, some of the NCAA tournament. I watched uh, my Mountaineers. And, and there was uh, the women's tournament as well that both finished up last weekend. And uh, while these games are on television and they're broadcast and uh, in front of millions of viewers and played in front of packed professional stadiums, the players themselves are not professionals. Um, they're, they're not paid anything beyond uh, the compensation they get for in, their, in form of their scholarships uh, and their room and board and, and few other expenses that are tied to the cost of education at the school and, and travel expenses to, to the games, of course. And, cr and critics have mostly said that that's sort of a, a model from a different time when it was sort of a modest amateur athletic competition in the, in the spirit of competition. And now as we've all been alluding to it is a making money hand over fist whole like billion dollar industry doing this right so i mean the stakes are different than they were when this stuff like got started yes that's correct i mean tbs and cbs uh, yeah. paid billions of dollars for the rights uh, mm -hmm. to show the ncaa men's and women tournament men's and women's tournaments uh in fact they just re-upped a deal for for the, that'll carry them from 2024 to 2032 for 8.8 .8 billion dollars oh, yeah so wow. Anytime there's $8.8 .8 billion being thrown around, I have to think that uh, that there's been litigation over this to figure out whether or not the, the college athletics has morphed into something where the where the athletes should be paid. So walk us through some of the litigation that's happened previously over this. Yeah, so there was a landmark case uh, brought by Ed O'Bannon, a former mm -hmm. UCLA basketball player. Right. Uh, and, and that ended up in a huge Ninth Circuit uh, decision. And essentially, the O'Bannon case challenged uh, rules that prohibited athletes from being paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness right. uh, on television and, and in other places. The case grew to, to, to touch upon the amateurism issue, but it was really f originated and focused on that name, image, and likeness issue. And, and essentially, the Ninth Circuit found that the rules themselves that blocked the players were anti-competitive, but you know, they were justified for, for various reasons, and, the, and, and siding with the NCAA, uh, essentially finding that, you know, people watch ba college basketball and college football because they're amateurs. Right. And that's what makes it popular. So if you started to pay the players, that would destroy their There are pro-competitive things. Exactly. That, that, right, right, exactly. Right. Okay, so that one sounds like it was a relatively limited ruling, even though it was a, sort of a first-of-its-kind case there. Um, but now we have another case we're talking about. What's going on right now? Yeah, so there's a new set of cases that have been combined in, in California, and they more directly attack this amateur system in mm -hmm. college athletics. Uh, they say that the rules, uh, it's a whole web of rules and yeah. bylaws that the NCAA uh, promulgates that stops schools or prevents schools from being able to pay players beyond uh, the scholarships tied to the cost of attendance. So they claim that schools aren't competing with each other for, you know, in this market to to attract these players, right? Well, yeah, exactly. They're saying the NCAA rules prevent them from competing. Right. So what happened this week? Because we're talking about a ruling that happened, uh, or I guess it was last week, yeah. uh, that that sent this case toward trial. So so explain what the judge said. Yeah. So the NCAA had said that this new case 
had been uh, you know covered already in the O'Bannon case. But uh, Judge Wilkin in uh, in California, the same judge that handled the O'Bannon case, said mm-hmm. that no, this one is different. It, it directly attacks these amateurism rules, and it does so in a slightly different way. And so she issued a ruling that essentially teed this case up for a trial later this year. And what uh, I mean, this has been something that people on the, the NCA has firmly dug in its heels on its amateur model and active labor activists are always saying that you know players should be paid what they're worth it gets very high profile grabs a lot of headlines what actually is it like what's at stake here what 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 kind of changes could this tee up if it if it plays out in a in the fashion that we anticipate well, you know, essentially the players are pushing for a, a ruling that would prevent the NCAA from being able to enforce or, or make these rules that prevent the players from being uh, paid. So would that be like a floodgates are open? Right, right. And, and that could lead to, uh, you know, a number of different uh, or schools that would open the door for schools to offer a number of different benefits or uh, uh, compensation packages to attract and keep the best recruits at their school. One thing that was interesting that the, the, the judge discussed in, in her case uh, is the idea that the conference is to have more power to set these rules. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, if the Big Ten wanted to open the door for its players to be paid in all, all, all variety of ways, they could do so while the Ivy League, which is more focused on academics, they don't have to. And the idea there is that no one conference you know, has the market power to control the entire, the entire market. And also, you know, the players say that if you did open the door, these billions of dollars that are going, uh, that are being paid by like CBS and NCAA, or I'm sorry, CBS and TBS yeah. and ESPN uh, to broadcast these games, that that money is going to go to the players because the, 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 the schools are going to want to bring the best players just as they do now. And, and that makes a lot of sense. It, it's, it's interesting that you talk about this now, that, uh, this sort of conference by conference model, because one thing that, again, uh, uh, defenders of the NCAA always say is like, well, how could you ever? There's like whatever 300 whatever Division One schools in various you know sports. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how could you ever figure out a system to pay everyone? And that's a fair point. Uh, but you know, that's not like in, I mean, I'm editorializing it. I mean, that's not a good enough reason not to litigate something. It's just yeah. because like because it's hard to do. Yeah, and it's like taking place within the bounds of yeah. higher education systems where somewhere like you know sharp economic minds could figure out a solution, much like this conference thing. Exactly, and, and that's a, an important part of this case. It's not saying that players should be paid any amount or that there should be a certain system. It's about removing the restrictions. Totally, yeah. It's and, almost and, a separate and I think thing. On the NCAA side, I mean, they're worried, uh, and they actually put out a video over the weekend with uh, uh, the President Mark Emmert, where he said that, like, if you were to allow the football and basketball players to be paid, that could affect the other sports. There wouldn't be as much money for, say, the lacrosse and the field hockey teams. And that may also have important Title IX implications. So big institutional folks really don't always relish the idea of going to trial in, yeah. some, in, a, in a big case like this where there's you know a lot of different things could happen. Is there any chance we see the NCAA settle out here and come, come up with some sort of like – middle ground uh, solution to, to this issue? Well, uh, it's interesting that you ask that because there actually were some claims here that were settled already, the claims that were seeking damages for athletes who hadn't been paid, and the NCAA and the plaintiffs agreed to a $209 million settlement. Mm-hmm. However, the these other claims that are seeking uh, an injunction to remove these rules, yeah. th- those really are headed towards a trial or there's going to be need, need to be some court resolution to that. Zach, I'm so glad you explained all of this before this trial gets underway later this year, because now I get to go home and tell my husband I know some things about sports. That's always helpful for me. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.
like to end our show with something offbeat. And Bill, I think you have a good one for us today. Well, nothing says offbeat like pig blood. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. That's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're talking Throwing about today. Throwing down the gauntlet <laughs> for our offbeat section. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I got to get into it now, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so it's what we call a tease, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, an Iowa man last week um, who said that his hometown smelled like, quote, rancid dog food. Okay. Uh, and then was threatened by city officials for saying that about the town. Uh, he won a free speech lawsuit against the uh, against the city government. So he literally said, my town stinks. My town stinks. Stinks. Where, where did he say this? In the sense of full disclosure, this was not a Law 360 story. This was an AP story. Okay. And the headline was incredible. It was just, man who said town stinks uh, win, wins free speech case. Listen, sometimes, it was amazing. It's, sometimes it's best not to overthink this stuff. You know, just, just lay out the facts. So, there. guys, let's get right down to the facts of this one. Uh, <laughs> the Iowa Drying and Processing Company okay. really rolls right off the Yeah, time. right. They make a high the protein. The We've all been there. They make right. a high protein animal food supplement from pig blood. Wow, that sounds gross. That's okay. their biz. Yeah. Um, so the company moved into a vacant building in Sibley, Iowa. Okay. In uh, 2013, Sibley has a population of 2,600. Very small, nice. rural town in uh, in Iowa. And in a um, really shocking development, uh, a pig blood factory doesn't smell good. <laughs> um, I mean, you know what? There's some towns do have weird stuff like this, like. When I drive home to visit my family in West Virginia, I mm-hmm. pass through the bulk of the state of Virginia to get there from up here. And I drive through one town that has a paper factory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Classic. They yeah. smell really intense. I like, mean, you I can grew- smell it in your car as you're like passing through this town. I grew up in New Jersey. So, I mean, yeah, this can't is really talk new. about yeah. places stinking. This is why we thought this would be good for you to talk right. us through. Here. Um, so, oh, it's so mean. It's not true. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so it is mean, but the point is it's legal, right? This guy, Josh Harms, this local resident of Sibley, uh, he set up a website in 2015 to criticize the stinkiness of the town that had come up since this pig blood factory had moved into this town. This is like out of a Parks and Rec episode. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is like so absurd. <laughs> right. So an attorney for the city of Sibley uh, sent Harms a letter saying his complaints about the aforementioned stink yeah. uh, would hurt the town of Sibley, hurt the community, and that he would be sued if he didn't stop. Uh, suit for what? Unclear. I didn't see the letter, but right. Harms was very scared about this, and the whole idea is that they can't sue him. That was right, that's sort of, of, of the point here. So yeah. Harms was scared. He changed his website to be really positive. He said <laughs> it didn't Aww. smell anymore. It actually, smells great. <laughs> so like, literally censorship. Uh, and so um, the city also ordered him not to talk to a reporter. And like oh. not to mention, oh, come on. see now th- we're going. This is a this not to mention yeah. that they had sent him a letter about the website because the website like went down and a local <laughs> reporter asked him why he took it down. So anyway, with the help of the ACLU, um, he sued at the beginning of March, claiming First Amendment violations. And guys, good news, he won big this week. Uh, he won an injunction against any further threats from the town. He won sixty five hundred dollars in damages. Hey, nice little great. chunk of change. Uh, he won $20,000 in legal fees, and oh, the city okay. also agreed to issue a written apology and do First Amendment training with its staff. They really need that training. Yeah. yeah. Say First Amendment training. I would love to sit in on that. Right. It's just like, you don't, cannot. Here's don't the... threaten your citizens who want to exercise their free speech. <laughs> here's the real question, though. Have we come to a solution for the pig blood stink? That is, yeah. Well, I, it, it, it is kind of funny that uh, the town sued him and not the company. I know. Uh, which is like, if, if anybody was going to li- be, be litigious about it, like that's, that's kind of a Well, truth one. is an absolute defense to claims of libel. So I guess you could say here that... Uh, if the town stinks like a hog pit, you must have quit. 
Oh, guys, Court I is have adjourned, to, in my opinion. I, I have to end the show on that note, everyone. That was great. Thanks for being with me, Bill. I will see you again next week with more stuff like that. And Alex. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcana, Stephen Trader, and Christine Powell. Our guests this week, Zach Zagger, and contributing reporters, Vingarari and Sam Reisman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know about anything we talked about in today's show, please check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. Thanks, and join us again next week. Right? And it's like, what's the deal with Pacer and us? <laughs> I realized in the middle, I was like way too, like, this is not a normal post cadence. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>